Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the story this morning, it's been the rate market. We have the 10-year Treasuries. Charlie is just reporting 1.48%. We did test 1.51. And the 30-year, we are at a 2.04%. We're just about 2% right now. Um, what's that mean? What's that telling us here? Let's bring in Tom Porcelli, Chief U.S. Economist for RBC Capital Markets. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. We've seen rates move up uh, pretty uh, significantly just by relative standards of, over the last couple of years. Just in the last uh, couple of days here, what do you take away from it? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the move higher makes sense. Um, the, the timing may not. Uh, you know, this all happened sort of days after the, the FOMC meeting. But, um, no, I, I think we're moving um, sort of directionally. I, I think that this is all pretty consistent with, you know, the idea that, look, um, you know, we're moving away or we're going to be moving away from, you know, emergency levels of accommodation. I mean, I think that is – um, you know, w where we are from an economic backdrop perspective, um, growth is, uh, you know, it's funny. So, so let me frame the conversation this way, because I think this is a really important um, idea for, for people to keep in mind. You know, when, when you think about the last hiking cycle, um, you know, the one that the Fed started back in 2015, uh, you know, the Fed had the luxury of, of going really slow, right? You know, we had the jobless recovery, um, you know, output, you know, uh, i.e. GDP, you know, didn't get back. Um, to the sort of the pre-GFC level, uh, the great financial crisis, the pre-GFC level of growth for it took like a decade. <laughs> I mean, you know, the unemployment rate was elevated yep. for years. Um, none of that's happened now. You know, yeah. now it, it's, it's taken 18 months for us to basically get back to where we were pre-pandemic level of output um, for the unemployment rate to, you know, really show meaningful improvement. So I, I think that this is all going to be much more accelerated relative, particularly relative to what we saw after the GFC. Well, to that point, Tom, with kind of the trajectory that the Fed has outlined here, a taper announcement likely in November and then rate liftoff possibly in 2022, even with that timeline, do they risk being too far behind the curve? I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, so, I, you know, this is the should versus would part, right? Uh, and I learned long ago um, that I'm always supposed to forecast what the Fed will do, not what I think they should do. Do I think the Fed should have started this process um, months ago? Yeah, I do. And uh, I think the people that know our uh, research well know that you know we've uh, th that that's the sort of the side of the um, the the this equation that we will come down on. The Fed was supposed to start this much sooner, but again, we were also acutely aware. Um, that that's probably not what they were going to do. So I, I think this is all pretty much in keeping with what Powell has um, laid out in terms of the sort of the, you know, starting this process in a very slow, methodical fashion. Um, I think it's all in keeping with, with what Powell wanted. Um, but I, I, again, I would hasten to add, um, just keep in mind, one day Powell said they were not going to taper, and then, you know, the next week they said we're going to taper, right? And it's the same thing is going to happen from a rate hike perspective. I mean, Powell is mm -hmm. saying the same thing right now. We're not going to hike rates, but it'll, it'll evolve in the same way. And so 22 for us, um, I, you know, again, I think that they should at least give us one hike. I mean, again, now the median has shifted for a hike, but again, just keep in mind something. If you look at their, their 22 unemployment rate forecast, 
um, it's about 3.8%. That's not very different than where we were pre-pandemic. And keep in mind where we were pre-pandemic from a funds perspective. We're 250, right? So (laughs) 250 then equated um, to, uh, you know, uh, or or was roughly equivalent to uh, an unemployment rate that was, you know, where they expect it to be in 22. But now in 22, it it only equates to one hike. I mean, that seems inconsistent to us. Again, it's a process and uh, we're not going to beat up on them. I I think that they do want to go uh, in a very slow fashion. But I I think that there's a a very, uh, it's very inconsistent. And Tom, we saw in the Fed's release, uh, taking down their economic growth forecast, yet taking up uh, their inflation outlook. Does that suggest stagflation for this U.S. economy? No, I think, you know, I, I have to be honest. I hate the I, I hate this conversation in that, um, the, you know, the stagflation part of the conversation, because I, I, I can make I can get on board with the flation part. I can't get on board with the stag part. I mean, you know, we're looking at what, four or five percent growth. Um, next year, uh, you know, that, and, and by the way, that's our own forecast, which interestingly enough is inconsistent with the Fed. I mean, I think the Fed is around 4% for 22, 6% for 21, um, n- numbers that are in line with us. W- w- what's stag about that? I mean, right. you know, it's like you're, still, you're still multiples above potential growth. I mean, I, that, yeah. I, I'm a fader of that entire conversation, the stag part of it, the inflation part of it, I can buy into more, but Yeah. And obviously the Fed is looking at the inflation part. And then they also have to look at the other part of their dual mandate, which is trying to maximize employment. As we look ahead to the jobs report we're getting on October 8th and that print for September, I'm wondering what you're expecting to see, given even though additional benefits have started to roll off, you haven't actually seen the corresponding return of people to the labor market. Yeah, so we don't have a. Um, we'll have a forecast for uh, next Friday's payroll report uh, this Thursday. Um, but what I can tell you is, you know, I, 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 I people are already asking about it, as you would expect. You know, or, you know, now that the uh, um, uh, the kicker has expired, you know, will uh, the generous kicker has expired? Will uh, Olson will see this? You know. Um, a burst of hiring. No, we, we, we don't think that that's how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's another, you know, sort of million plus job print waiting out there for us. I think it'll be a bit slower than that. Again, uh, you know, is it another 235,000 like we saw last month? No, I think it probably will wind up looking a little bit better than that. Again, I've I got to go through the numbers still. But I think more importantly, uh, does it matter? I mean, <laughs> Powell basically told us already that it's, um, uh, you know, I- I- as long as we see, uh, you know, a sort of another decent payroll report, and he already had the 235 in hand, so I'm guessing that that sort of would meet some of the criteria of quote-unquote decent, mm-hmm. um, then I think that, you know, tapers on, and again, if their forecast for the end of next year comes into play, then we're back to where we were pre-pandemic, um, and that should be enough for the Fed to, to start the process of lifting rates. Is there, as we're talking about labor, is there a point where we re- need to think about realistically uh, wage inflation? I, I mean, it's happening, right? Uh, you know, wage mm-hmm. inflation, uh, wage inflation is upon us right right now. Uh, I, I think you know, again, mo- most people uh, are aware that you know, 11 million job openings, uh, people having a hard time finding workers. Uh, as a result, uh, wage pressures are building. Uh, but again, I I would hasten to add. Uh, I, I, I don't think that that means that, that these gains that we've seen um, are going to be sustained. I, I don't think that they are. Um, I think leisure and hospitality is sort of a great example of that. Leisure and hospitality is the biggest shortfall in jobs right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And once um, you start to get some of those jobs back, you know, when there's, you know, three and four and five people um, applying for a job, uh, for a single job, I, I think that those uh, wage pressures can abate. But Again, the benefit is already has already materialized, right? I mean, we're now well above where we were pre-pandemic from a, a wage pressure perspective. So I think the level 
of wages is going to matter very much so in the months to come, more so than, than the rate. Because, again, I just don't think that, that these rates can be maintained. All right, Tom. Hey, we really appreciate getting your thoughts here, Tom. Lots of data, lots of moving parts out there, so it's good to get your perspective. Tom Purcelli, Chief U.S. Economist for RBC Capital Markets, uh, joining us here. And, and uh, Kayla, you just uh, reminded us Amazon Target cut at Morgan Stanley on impact from rising wages. So. Yeah, exactly. It, the cost of labor is going up for a lot of companies, and that's not just a conversation for the Fed and wage inflation. That's earnings and what that's going to mean for margins. Yep. yep, that's a great point. And so uh, the question is, how transitory are some of these factors versus uh, you know how longer term? We'll have more certainly coming up on all of those issues. This is Bloomberg. Good morning. All right, let's bring in Frank Holmes. Frank is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. He's also Executive Chairman of Hive Blockchain Technologies, joining us on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Frank, thanks so much for joining us again here. I want to start with crypto. I just want to get your thoughts, because since the last time we chatted, China's taken a decidedly different approach to kind of all things crypto. What's your take? Well, it's it's the uh, the leadership uh, actually believes that uh, they allowed under Deng Xiaoping capitalism was a transitory phase to the road to socialism, and socialism is all about centralized control. And uh, when we're witnessing an attack on all technology, limits on capital, uh, returns in capital for risk-taking, and so you're seeing that uh, this is now going into crypto because they're coming up with their own digital money, and and they just do not want to have anything to compete with it. Um, and next will be they've been trying to push to compete against the U.S. dollar, uh, but uh, oil nations like Saudi Arabia said so they won't take their currency, they want dollars, so now they're trying to buy a lot of gold. You see huge gold movements going to China to try to create legitimacy behind their currency, but they're further along in the path of having their own digital money. Uh, but they've become a non-event. You know, the, the market's bounced right back. Uh, it's been a big boom for America. Uh, in Texas in particular, I know that uh, building 1.2 gigabytes of, uh, uh, of energy that's stranded from natural gas, uh, which they can turn around to do Bitcoin mining. Uh, and you're seeing that more and more people, are, nodes are growing in America. So it's very, very positive this shift is happening here. Is that why we have seen the crypto market basically take a round trip since that China news came out on Friday? I mean, Bitcoin is back around $44,000 like it never even happened. And Ethereum jumped 12% from <laughs> uh, those lows, yes. You know, you, you're, that's a good you know, good observation. The same thing out of Europe. What we notice is, is that the number of miners, is, in fact, Ethereum is more decentralized than Bitcoin because when China came down with the hammer, uh, the mining... The, the number of miners in the world dropped dramatically, so the difficulty, there's no competition, fell greatly. So even though Bitcoin fell to 30,000, the profit margins we had were growing uh, because there was no competition. Because it basically, it's limited to 900 coins a day that you run, and it's a jump ball to see if you can touch that ball. And if you get to touch that ball, then you can mine coins. So we're mining close to eight coins a day of Bitcoin. Uh, and, and that difficulty only helped it. Now it's been growing slightly uh, because it moved shift to Kazakhstan, but the big move has come to the U.S., and I think that's very positive. Ethereum hardly came off that difficulty.
difficulty. All the gamers in the world, when Ethereum rises, they basically try to turn the machines on. They run up their parents' uh, electrical bill, <laughs> and uh, they take that uh, GPU chip they need, and they mine an Ethereum coin, and then they go off on a holiday. So, uh, Franks, I'm wondering, you know, that strategy for China here, because, you know, if you listen to the, the bulls of crypto and Bitcoin, it's the future. It's the future of decentralized finance. If that is, in fact, the case, does China not run the risk of just falling behind the global, you know, competitive landscape in terms of crypto? Well, absolutely. And in other technologies, too. I mean, it, it's um, a return to socialism is a return to trying to drive your car looking out the rearview mirror. Hmm. Um, and, and and it's nothing but guilt and shame and attack, and everyone's looking out the rearview mirror. You can't drive forward. But, uh, and so I think it's it's quite dangerous. Well, but Frank, China also is in the process of rolling out a digital yuan, right? So in some way, you could argue maybe they're making space for that. How do you think about kind of government-controlled, centralized digital currencies versus the crypto world and the likes of Bitcoin? It's the complete opposite. And if you notice that the more socialist the country is, the more they are anti-gold and they're anti-Bitcoin. Um, they wish to control everything that has to do with money. Money is basically evil unless the government is in control of it uh, in every part of it. When you just look around the world for that idealism that takes place, and that's what happens, and, and Bitcoin is, is, is the opposite. But something else that's really important for all your listeners is Bitcoin validated the blockchain. The blockchain was created by telecom companies to move money in 1991, and it wasn't really validated until Bitcoin came along and showed this tri triple entry accounting is a major breakthrough in accounting that hasn't ha taken place since the Medicis uh, that created banking in the Venetians in the 1400s. So the, 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 the bottom line is that blockchain is going to grow, and the adoption of uh, Bitcoin yep. is so decentralized, there's 13,000 nodes yep. around the world. So we're in, we're in, and, and Hive is the uh, first public yep. company to mine both Bitcoin and Ethereum, and we only use green energy. So we're not caught consumed right. with these other difficulties some of the other miners have had. All right, Frank. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate it. Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. Mo Hagman, Chief Operating Officer for Invesco Investment Solutions. Uh, he joins us today. They've got their sixth annual Global, Global Factor Investing Study. That's released today. I'm going to talk to Mo about that. Uh, factor investing has become a big, big way for folks to look at investing in these markets. Mo, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts, the highlights, the takeaways from your global uh, factor investing study. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Yes, as you mentioned, we released our uh, sixth annual uh, factor investing study uh, today, and the study basically interviews 240 or so institutional and retail investors around the world, roughly about $31 trillion in assets uh, by those asset owners, held by those asset owners. And what's interesting is we continue to see, uh, no surprise, that factor investing continues to gain adoption, uh, both institutionally and more recently uh, in the retail market. And specifically, what was interesting this year is we saw a lot of uh, rotation within kind of the factor strategy uh, landscape. Uh, given kind of the markets and what we saw post the uh, presidential election last year, we've seen a very uh, large shift towards value and more pro-cyclical factors mm -hmm. at the expense of defensive and low volatility factors, which had been gaining a lot of traction over the years. 
Well, and then when we talk about the momentum factor as well, there was a lot of conversation, particularly in kind of the first quarter of the year when we saw that huge rush into value, that value was then the new momentum when it had been growth before. How do you think about the momentum factor now, given some of those dynamics? Yeah, it's a very interesting observation. So momentum is a technical factor. So it kind of shapeshifts. It actually takes the characteristics of other factors. And what we have seen over the last 12 months is momentum looks very much like value and size, whereas historically it had been very much growth and kind of low volatility oriented as the mega cap tech companies were the best price performers. You're absolutely right. We've seen actually some more concentration within the value and momentum factor. And those two historically have been negatively correlated. But more recently, there's a positive correlation between those two factors. So, Mo, just I'd love to take a step back here. When I was an, an equity analyst and I'd be walking into a meeting with a fund manager in Boston, my salesperson would turn to me and say, oh, this person's a growth investor or this fund manager's a value investor. Isn't, so how is that different from this factor investing we talk about? It's really not that different. I think it's very much a different lens of looking at the same thing. I think for a very long period of time, we thought about the world in like the Morningstar style box where managers really had a discipline, whether you're a value fundamental manager or a growth manager. Factors are actually a very uh, precise way of capturing some of those same outperformance characteristics. We know factors over the very long term have a premium attached to them, very much like asset classes have premiums attached to them. And you're actually able to capture that by focusing in systematic ways on parts of the equity market. So when you want value, for example, in your portfolio, you look at fundamental metrics such as earnings and uh, revenues and cash flows, and you're looking for cheapness in the market. When you look at momentum, it's a technical factor, which really looks at price appreciation over the recent recent past. So, you know, it's not really that much different. I think it's a new lens of thinking about it. And what we've seen is that adoption has actually moved, as you mentioned, from the equity markets into fixed income. Yeah. So this, this year's factor study was really interesting in that we saw investors looking at fixed income factor strategies as a way to reduce cost in a low yield environment. Well, while we're talking about fixed income, I would love to just get your take on the bond market and the action we've seen over the last couple of days post-Fed decision, this dramatic move upward in yields to test 150 again. Just do you think the bond market and the equity market are now in sync? What's interesting is you know, we talk a lot about rates, but rates are still historically very low. And I think at this point in the economic cycle, you should actually expect some steepening of the yield curve. Uh, we actually think that's actually quite uh, healthy for the bond market. Uh, although when we look at certain sectors within the equity market, obviously there's going to be more sensitivity to rising rate environment. You know, tech has always been very sensitive to rates. And if you think about what really drives tech valuations, it's the discount rate and future cash flows. We know future cash flows are kind of priced for perfection. So any move in rates has a very, very big impact on kind of the, the pricing of those, of those particular uh, securities within the market. All right. So Mo, it looks like a lot of folks are kind of thinking about a re reopening trade here. Uh, um, you know, the vaccination numbers continue to trend in the right direction. You know, how are you thinking about that here as you take a look at the some of the factors that you're hearing from your clients? Sure. So the economic backdrop is still very uh, supportive of risk assets, although what I will tell you is that our economic indicators, our leading indicators, are showing, to, showing a little bit of softening and growth. And that deceleration is actually noticeable across every region around the world. 
That said, investor sentiment and risk appetite in the market has been improving, which we kind of look at as possibly pointing to a rebound in growth as we go into year end. And there's really a couple of reasons that I think that is a very plausible outcome. One, we still have a very accommodative policy backdrop. I know the Fed tapering has been a topic, but it has been very well socialized. And I don't actually think the market was surprised by a lot of that commentary. What we do think is more important, though, is liftoff, right? And if there's any change in that uh, accommodation around rates rising, right. you know, if it's end of 2022, that could be very impactful. All right, we'll keep an eye on that. Mo Hagman, Chief Operating Officer for Invesco Investment Solutions, giving us his thoughts on these markets and factor investing. More coming up. This is Bloomberg. Talk about our performance. We're starting to get uh, some of the big universities endowments. They're reporting their fiscal, their returns for their fiscal year ended uh, June. Uh, boy, some big, big numbers. And again, kind of the pandemic impacting the returns given the timing there, but still some pretty solid uh, 40, 50 percent returns. And I see my boys down at Duke University, Neil Triplett from the Duke University Management Company, I put up a 56% return. <laughs> so I will buy uh, Neil a beverage of his choice when I see him uh, soon down in Durham. Janet Warren, higher education finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone. Janet, the university's endowments are putting up just some stellar numbers in this most recent fiscal year. Yes, it's really once in a generation that you're seeing some of these numbers. We reported WashU last week and they added are you sitting down? Six billion dollars. Wow. With the value <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> they made that money in 12 months, and only about two dozen universities even have at least six billion dollars. So wow. it's, it's really been, uh, as I said, once in a generation are you going to see these kinds of returns. And it's really coming from two ends. One is, you know, you look at how global equities perform during the year. You know, the U.S. stock market alone was up 41% during that time period. So if you had a nice allocation to certain global equities, um, that certainly helped you. And even if you're going to see the smallest endowments that invested in U.S. equities uh, will have some nice returns, where typically they're not able to capture what the biggies have done. Um, but you're also going to see it from the venture capital side. So, you know, mm. two ways to get these crazy returns this year. Plus, you know, if you are lucky to have a, a really robust and the right venture in your portfolio, you know, you're seeing these super duper outsized returns. Yeah, I saw a data point that broadly higher education institutions are on track for their best return since 1986. I mean, we're talking decades here. <laughs> and to Paul's point, how do they put it to work? What do they do with all this money? Well, that's a really good question. And that... Um, Colleges are going to be having to answer that, um, you know, as they're posting the returns. This is all very new in the last week. We've just been getting these numbers. Um, but, you know, we've already heard, um, you know, the endowment tax, which many of these schools are, are paying, mm. um, likely is going to be um, uh, not necessarily rescinded, but the, 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 what's on the table is that schools are going to give money towards financial aid. So I think uh, you're going to see that pressure, you know, having to increase scholarships. You know, do they, what else do they do with this money? You know, of course, their position is we can't spend it all because we have to be fair to the current students as well as the future students. So it's, it's a really good question. What are they going to do with it? So, Jenna, give us a sense of the strategies here because we know a lot of these endowments, and I'm thinking about Yale in, in particular a couple of decades mm -hmm. ago, really embraced alternative investments um, and successfully so. So it's kind of become the Yale, you know, method, if you will, of managing endowments. 
how big has alternative investments been to to some of these returns? Well, um, quite quite a bit. Um, and if you look at Yale, which we haven't seen um, when they announced their new um, chief investment officer since David Swenson passed away earlier this year, um, he there was a note in there that he manages the venture capital portfolio, and the venture capital portfolio at Yale alone is over twenty five percent. So you know you get a sense of how big alternatives are. In um, a place like Yale, you know they haven't directly invested in U.S. equities in decades. Um, so among the biggest colleges, they're, you know they're not holding U.S. equities, but you know they may be have that exposure through a hedge fund or through global equity funds. Um, so, uh, but but largely, um, you know, in, alternatives have been where they've seen a lot of their outsized returns. Yeah, very interesting, and uh, it, that's a certain level of risk into these endowments that they historically did not have, and so that's one of the challenges for these endowments is to manage that risk, but it certainly paid off this year. Janet Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Really fascinating story uh, unfolding as we get more and more of these uh, universities reporting their endowment returns for the fiscal year ended in, in June. Janet Lauren, higher education reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone here. And again, I will just point out for those that weren't listening earlier, Duke 56% <laughs> return, and I know it easily beats our friends down in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania who also had some pretty good numbers, up 41%. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.